You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. This is part one of four panels forming part of Assemble Paper's Living Closer Together Symposium, a series of panel sessions exploring the intersection between the way we experience, design, and plan for a lively and equitable city. This is part two. What makes a good apartment building? Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back, or thanks for joining Hello. us if you've just uh, just arrived. Um, we're about to move on now to our second panel of the day, which is quite a nice uh, segue from the first one where we've been discussing uh, sort of the direction of the city in a very broad sort of context um, and, and pathways to home ownership and different models and ways that we can achieve that point. Um, we're now going to look at more of a design uh, component of that question. So the next panel is... What makes a good apartment building? And it's going to be moderated by Vlad from Fieldwork. So, Vlad, I'll throw over to you. Uh, thanks very much, Kat. Can everyone hear me okay? At the back? Yeah? Great. Um, so, hello, my name is Vlad Dudikalev. I'm an architect at Fieldwork. And I'm going to be moderating this session on what makes uh, a good apartment building. Um, I think I wanted to really start the panel just maybe going into a little bit of semantics about the word good and probably introduce the topic with that word so that I would get the, um, the panel to really outline what they think is good, what that means within the context of their experience, their personal experiences professionally and uh, really start it off like that because I think it will sketch out the topic and where we might go with the rest of it and we will then dive into it a little bit more. So I thought, um, Catherine, maybe... We'll start with you, and really from um, from the perspective of uh, your experience as an urban designer and a planner, and you've done um, a lot of work in Australia, um, internationally as well, in Europe, and uh, you've seen how communities can develop out of single uh, buildings, and and how that's a really important, uh, really important aspect, <laughs> a really important aspect to, to grow a community. I just wanted to see what you thought was a good apartment building. Okay. Do you want us so to introduce each ourselves at, at the beginning of the conversation? <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I was going to do it one, one okay. by one. Okay, great. Yeah. Hello. Okay. Thanks for that, Vlad. Yeah. So, yes, Catherine Sunderman from MGS Architects. Um, it sounds like you've given me a few suggestions of what I should be putting into my answer. Um, but it's definitely a topic that's very close to my heart at the moment because I'm currently looking for a rental apartment in a very, very tight market. And I can tell you all there's not that many what I would call a good apartment that's on offer. Um, so for me, it's really got three components. Firstly, there's the location. For me, it's important to be close to friends, family, jobs, services. And um, something really great about being able to walk downstairs and catch up with a friend for a wine. And that's one of the great things that you get from apartment living is that density rather than um, being much further away. I think the second thing is really about the, the kind of density of the apartment. And I think that um, I used to live in Amsterdam in this beautiful four-storey apartment building and that kind of density seemed to work really well. You could look down and see the activity on the street. I had a... There was a bar underneath my apartment building. So when I got a parcel delivered, I could go and pick it up there. There was a dry cleaner across the road, that kind of thing. And you really, as you say, got a sense of being part of a, a community of some kind. But I think the third element is obviously the internal characteristics of the apartment building. 
and um, I think there's a few non-negotiables for me and I think one of them is definitely having high ceilings in the living space. You need to have a space that makes you your heart fill with joy and that you can fill with your beautiful belongings and have friends over for dinner. So I think they would be my main attributes of a good apartment building. Thank you. Um, Monique, I think we had a, a very similar conversation about that just the other day and you were telling me about your experience um, living in an apartment building that had uh, four metre ceilings and just northern aspect and those are two um, factors that are obviously very important to a good apartment building but, um, you know, I'm sure that there are many others in the design of the internal um, features of an apartment building that, uh, that you hold quite dear and I was wondering if you could take us through some of those. Yeah, I guess um, to take a step back, I guess I would say, um, you know, a good building um, needs to be a good piece of architecture. So I um, run an architecture practice called Wawawa um, and we are working on the Nightingale, um, a Nightingale project within the Nightingale village in Brunswick. And uh, I guess our approach to what, what a good building uh, should be is what... Uh, you know, to, to basically design a good piece of architecture. Um, you know, architecture <clears throat> itself is a social construct. It should be responsive to um, the place and the political, uh, socio-political, um, I guess, aspirations and values of, um, um, of the people uh, who will be living there, um, who are using it, um, and... and uh, I guess, the construct of the time. So um, I guess it, it, for our, our work, um, you know, is very heavily uh, centred around narratives and playfulness and so I guess it would need to, it would need to be all those things. Um, so I'll take it around to the other side of the panel now. So um, Kino, um, you are Director of Fieldwork and Assemble, um, an architecture practice and... Uh, an end-to-end -end property development company, and you've uh, you've lived in apartments in Europe, in Australia, and recently moved into your own apartment that you designed as One Two Two Roseneath Street. And I was just wondering if you had some other perspectives that you could um, add into that from those experiences. Yeah. So first of all, I want to say thanks so much for all of you coming out today. I really wanted to stay home under a dune and watch like a Matthew McConaughey movie and have some cocoa. <laughs> And instead, I'm here, but I'm excited to be here anyway. Um, so the first thing I actually want to say is, Catherine, I actually disagree with you completely about ceiling heights. I used to be obsessed with making all the ceilings and the apartment buildings I designed as high as possible. And then I went to Japan. And Japan completely flipped my notion about how important ceiling heights are. Like, we stayed in an apartment where the ceiling was actually 2.2. And it made me realize that high ceiling heights actually can just cover for a whole bunch of other design uh, sins. You know, it uh, means that you know, other good design elements uh, can actually make up for it. But that's not to say that I don't support high ceilings and that I don't still try and make high ceilings as high as possible, but I always thought it was a non-negotiable, but I actually think that if there's other issues at play, that you can still make a good space. Anyway, this is not about disagreeing. It's probably about all agreeing about great stuff. Um, so the question was in relation to Roseneath Street or just generally? Uh, your experience is generally, yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess as I've been working as an architect now for 17 years and during that time I've designed a lot of apartment buildings and I think 
my own journey has been one of really discovering that the really important thing about making a good apartment building isn't so much about the individual apartments. So that's, of course, you know, it's quite important how you design the individual apartments. It's actually what you do between the apartments that's really important. Because for me, it's about if you want to create a place that people actually want to live, it's not just about squeezing a whole bunch of people together. You know, by squeezing people together, you don't create community. The way that you, know, you can nurture a sense of community is really by working hard in the spaces between the, the apartments. So what we really advocate strongly in fieldwork now is a real emphasis on the spaces between the apartments being as communal as possible. So making circulation spaces, places that you actually want to hang out in, that you want to interact with your neighbors, and also really pushing for things like communal rooms, communal workshops, and the sort of spaces where just those little moments of uh, interaction and communi can community can start happening. With 2,200 <laughs> high ceilings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, Mitra, you are senior advisor to the planning minister, and I suppose you um, come from a different backdrop to the rest of the panel um, to this topic, but I think there's uh, a delible influence on the way that um, apartments are designed through um, through your work and through your advocacy. And I wondered what your perspective on what a good um, building is. Um, thank you. So my ceilings are 7.5 metres high at their highest point, which is pretty cool. Yeah, wow. But it's a peak. Um, but my building was built in 1880, so a bit different. I appreciate the height, but I'm sure we could get used to 2.2 metres as well, maybe. Um, so I... When I was thinking about this question, I thought that um, uh, I could say that an apartment, a good apartment is one that's designed for the person that's going to be living in it and not for the envelope it needs to fit into. I think an apartment, a good apartment also is a good apartment building and that means being a good neighbour and a good contributor to your street. And I think that a good apartment building we know in, um, on reflection it endures and it's something we can celebrate later. But just for that first one, I think particularly relevant to, I guess, where we're at in Victoria, what I saw when I was first looking at some tall tower applications a couple of years ago um, was a situation where we weren't having apartments that were designed for the person who was going to live in them. We were having apartments that were designed for the envelope that the building um, was going to fit into. And lots of decisions were being made, obviously, by an architect, presumably, who was working for a developer, presumably, to try and make sure they could get that floor plate fit into their building. And so I, when we had conversations about why, for example, there were, I don't know, 80% of the building had apartments with inboard, um, sorry, inboard bedrooms, so no, no windows out to the outside, they just said, well, that's the most efficient way to build an apartment building, because why would you have a window in your bedroom when you can have a window in your living room. Everyone spends their waking hours in their living room. We only have the ability to have a window, so much window space in a building, so let's not have it in the bedroom. And I guess our perspective, both from the minister's office as well as the amazing team who worked on BADS, is that's just, that's just really lazy design. It's, you don't need to have that. When you look at all of the rest of the buildings that were built in Melbourne without inboard bedrooms, they managed to somehow get even a sliver of light into the bedroom. And I have to say, I like waking up to the sunlight and not, to, not in darkness. So we also had lots of conversations with people who told us that people don't want um, windows in their bedrooms, that actually they'd really like to be able to have a dark bedroom because the city's a really bright place. And so it's much more pleasant to have a, um, 
a bedroom without any windows. To which point I said, you know, bring me those people, show me those people. I want to have a conversation with them um, and hear from them. And actually, one of the big, um, one of the people I spoke to, I won't say their name, is is the head of a big consultancy, and he said that he had um, an apartment in the city that had no windows in its bedroom, but he also has a beach house in Summers. So I was like, well, you know, at least you have some options, right? So we're about creating choice for people, real choice. And so just finally I'd say that we need, we need good apartments because we need apartments and it becomes a political conversation because if we have bad apartments that A, can't get sold or people don't want to live in or B, are really poor neighbours, then we have a conversation about how we don't want apartments in our city and I think that leads to a really uh, difficult position for us as architects and planners and people living in a growing city about how we manage how our city is built into the future. Yeah. What about goths? What about what? I was just thinking about goths might not like windows in their bedrooms. Yeah, so you can go to Spotlight and there are these things called blackout curtains. <laughs> yeah, they, can, they really nail it. You know, and there's always gaff tape as well. Like, yeah, go for gold. Yeah, it's all about choice. <laughs> Um, so I, I think uh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad that we did that round because I think it sort of teased out a couple of themes that uh, are really worth exploring in the context of, of this. And you know, there's this idea of uh, the individual unit within the community and connecting to that. There's the uh, internal amenity and uh, I suppose from the role of the architect advocacy for good design and really pushing that forward. Um, there's almost a, a call a callback to uh, to how it was. Once upon a time, you know, historically, uh, apartments and, and houses were built from the inside out, and so now we're doing it from the inside in. And is there something we can learn from that? Um, and you know, I suppose Kino saying about uh, designing for a diversity of, of um, needs or people or, or desires, and, and having that uh, mix within uh, the within the stock that's within the city. And I think they're all really uh, valuable and valid. Um, aspects and I did sort of want to call back to some of that historical legacy because I think it's important to explore um, where we came from as, as apartment design uh, in order to understand how we've got here and then use that to really unshackle how to move forward um, and I thought Catherine maybe you could take us through some uh, what was what was much more uh, traditionally expected in you know in apartment design and, and what was what were the standards once upon a time yeah, I find that question really interesting because if I think about some of the best apartments in, in Melbourne, you're going to be thinking about the apartments from the 1930s, for example. Who of you here has been to Beverly Hills, for instance? <laughs> Andy puts his hand up. Um, so Beverly Hills is this fabulous um, apartment um, complex which is designed around a um, swimming pool in a kind of LA kind of way and has these glorious open um, entrances to the buildings and things like that. Um, but one of the things I've found when I look back in time and think about why are these apartments so awesome and why can't we achieve this today? So obviously a big element is the financial considerations and whether it was a boom type period or not. But another really big implication is the um, regulations that are in place at the time. So I'm sure... Um, both Mitra and Andy can correct me on some of the dates and things like that, but there's a few things that have changed throughout time. One of them is regulations about the height of the ceilings, which, as you know, is a big um, thing I'm quite keen on. Um, and you'll see that generally up until the 1930s or so, you did have quite high ceilings. And that was largely because people had fireplaces 
in their houses and you needed a space for the, was that smoke could be in the room and not disturb you. Um, and so that really changed when we reached the post-war period and there was a period of austerity and we needed to reduce the amount of building materials we were used. So they got rid of that higher standard for building ceilings and brought it right down. Um, another thing that really influenced how our apartments are shaped is that if you think about some of these older apartments, they've, every room has got a window, including the bathroom. And one of the reasons for that was that back then there was a regulation that you had to have a naturally ventilated bathroom. And so now we deal with that with all sorts of exhaust fans and things like that. And we no longer have a beautiful window to our bathroom, which obviously really shapes not just the interior spaces, but the form of the apartment building as well. If you look at some of those older ones, they have kind of little courtyards and things like that to get that natural light in. And the third element is when you were talking about these bedrooms without windows. Um, a lot of that comes from the 1990s when we had a lot of experimentation in apartments. And this is actually, in my mind, some of the, the best apartments that you see in Fitzroy are those converted warehouses. I'm always looking for something between 1995 and 2005 because this was a period of experimentation before we really got into the boom of mass-producing apartments. And at that time, you had to really encourage people to even get around the idea of moving into an apartment building. And so therefore they had these generous four metre high ceilings and things like that. But one of the other things that shifted was that with this converted warehouse model, they thought, oh, well, we can be really innovative and do things like have a mezzanine bedroom. And so it doesn't have a window because you have this borrowed light from the main living space. And so that's when the regulations changed from allowing, from mandating that you had a window into your bedroom to say, oh no, let's be all innovative and have it, um, have borrowed light to get the light into your bedroom. So that was, um, created some really fun spaces, but also left a legacy of some really horrible ones as well. I personally have a snorkel bedroom, if anyone knows what that is. So I can attest that I do not prefer this model. Um, thanks, Catherine. Um, Monique, you and I the other day were speaking about, um, I suppose, the other side of uh, historical legacy and how new buildings actually connect back to what once was there. And I suppose if we look at uh, good design from the perspective of how does a new building fit into uh, an existing context, I, I know that you had some really strong ideas about that and wondered if you could um, expand on those. Yeah, sure. And the importance of that. Yeah, I mean, um, so if anyone, um, put your hand up if you know Nightingale Village, the project. Um, so most people, yeah, <laughs> cool. You've probably been to a Nightingale talk before. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess um, we're really passionate about um, apartment buildings um, being pieces of architecture, as I said before. Um, our, you know, the design of our project was about creating a space frame or an infrastructure. Um, and it was this idea that, um, you know, that how do you actually formalise um, and visualise what a, a vertical neighbour, a neighbourhood actually looks like? Um, and so it was about giving people the choice, the person that, um, you know, put their money where their mouth was, engaged with the Baugruppen um, or Baugrupp, <laughs> whatever Andy's pronunciation was, um, Balgrupa is singular. Balgrupen is plural. Okay. Well, the village is plural, so <laughs> it's Balgrupen. Um, but, uh, 
yeah, so um, it was about creating an infrastructure um, where, where individuals could say, you know what, I want to live in a Californian bungalow or, a, you know, a Pomo apartment or a warehouse or, um, you know, Edwardian and having, um, having a level of agency over the building itself and having that flexibility um, and the ability to, um, um, to engage with, I guess, a level of nostalgia. Most people, when they have their single residential, if we're talking about the Australian dream, you know, they're off to Bunnings um, every weekend to buy some kind of um, fixer-upper agent. Um, and so it was about kind of um, having that level of customization and, and promoting that level of customization um, in a multi-res apartment. And so, um, you know, if, if it was about, um, you know, thinking about these, um, this, this construct um, as being a, almost a mirror of the context... Um, of of Brunswick in this situation, I guess you know that um, that idea very much informed the way we thought about the building as as it was formalised and what it should look like, and you know the kind of uh, you know agency individual agency that people should have, um, but then you know played out over the the village, um, yeah, thinking about um, certain certain things that would that would make um, for a good apartment space. Uh, or a good apartment living, you know, Claire Cousins, um, her building sits next to mine or ours um, and, you know, we, we very much could have um, built right to the boundary of our site. It's very unusual for a, a developer in this instance. Um, all of the Nightingale, uh, all of the Nightingale uh, apartments have essentially become developers. It's very unusual for a developer to give up a piece of land um, but we decided not to build um, all the way to the boundary, pull it back and create a pocket park that's for, um, that's for the residents but also for the community. It's also, um, you know, it would be a public laneway. Um, and just, you know, thinking about things, you know, there's always um, tenants at the bottom of these apartments but trying to think about where you go if you don't want to spend money. You know, we get coffees and it costs $4.50, um, to get a coffee, but you know, um, other than the rooftop or some communal spaces, it's it's quite hard um, unless you're living really close to a park. Um, you know, Brunswick doesn't have that many parks. It's quite hard to find a place to just sit and pause um, where you're not actually having to buy or rent that space with that coffee money. Um, and so, you know, those those kind of things became really important to us. And then, um, you know, trying to leverage trying to leverage those. Um, really amazing urban outcomes to achieve good architecture is something that we're finding extremely problematic because of certain levers that aren't necessarily available um, to recognise that goodwill. Um, uh, that Nightingale Housing is... <laughs> that Nightingale Housing, Nightingale Village is dealing with at the minute. Um, and so I could spiral yeah, <laughs> really hard... Um, <laughs> But, you know, I, I guess, like, it's those elements of generosity um, yep. to the context as well as, um, as well as to the individual people that own the apartments yep. or rent the apartments. Yeah, because I think it's, it's important. I'll, I'll swing it back to Kino. Just on um, when it comes to designing a new building within an existing context that uh, we don't just wipe the slate and that uh, it doesn't connect back to um, what was there. Because if you, if you uh, clear it everything that was once there, um, that 
legacy or identity of the, the neighbourhood or the people that once lived there or the activities that occurred uh, gets lost to time. And I know that, uh, you know, in a couple of uh, fieldwork projects, that's something that's been really explored as, as, a, as, a, as a touchstone. And I wondered if you could talk to that, you know, in the context of a couple of those projects. So I guess uh, from my point of view, it's incredibly important that buildings, you know, while they're going to be new, they've got to be really respectful of their context. I mean, people often ask me why we use brick and concrete so much. And quite frankly, uh, the simple answer is they don't look really crappy after 20 years. They actually look better. You know, they are two forms of uh, construction which I think are respectful of the long-term context as well. Um, Going back to the idea of sort of existing buildings, um, we really always push hard to hang on to as much existing fabric as we can. So we've just completed a project in Clifton Hill, Rosney Street, Clifton Hill. There was an existing brutalist building on the site which had no heritage overlay on it, but I fought very hard to hang on to as much of that fabric as possible at enormous expense to the development. Actually, we managed to hang on to a small piece of it. The builders hated it. My development partners hated it but we managed to sort of hang on to it. And I think it's just really important to not just go and wipe the slate clean. Uh, we've got another project right now, which is the new Assemble project in Kensington. That's actually got a beautiful building on it. It's, it's, a, it's, ba it's a very basic warehouse inside, but it's got a very beautiful street presence. It's actually a uh, Harry Norris-designed building. He's the architect who designed uh, the Nicholas Building, Mitchell House, and Curtin House, which are two, like, three really important buildings within Melbourne. And despite the fact that we could have gone in there and argued quite hard to remove quite a fair portion of that facade, uh, I was very keen to preserve the entirety of that uh, sort of facade. And it's not really just about facade, but it's actually really trying to cre keep some of the three-dimensionality of the building. And we're also in the interior design and the sort of lobby spaces and communal spaces really drawing on uh, his legacy as a designer in the sort of materials, the finishes, the little sort of details that we're putting in there. So that conversation is incredibly important. Um, but, you know, I, we're designing a lot of buildings and building a lot of buildings which are of a larger scale as well in the context. And that, for me as an architect, presents a real challenge because, you know, places like Brunswick, um, you know, Fitzroy, Collingwood, these are areas which have been traditionally quite a low-scale environment and you come along and put a very large building in there. There's a real challenge around how you design a tall building uh, to be an attractive addition to the neighbourhood. and. You know, one of the challenges I find with planning in Melbourne at the moment, it's all about this idea of trying to make the upper form recessive and it's all about street wall. But what you end up with, in fact, is people putting effort into the lower levels and then sort of just saying, oh, well, that's a recessive upper form, so we'll just do it out of painted blue board or something like that. And it can end up being really crappy. Whereas I say, we should sort of flip that around and say, let's make the upper forms, if these are going to be tall buildings, let's design them in such a way that they're attractive to look at, that they're attractive piece of sculpture, that they're actually something that's been considered. And also, to be honest, spend some time and effort and money uh, on how the services are presented as well, you know, because you can end up with all these air conditioning units and, you know, we're still battling on Rosneath Street with that issue, but, um, you know, trying to not sort of deny the height, but actually say, okay, if the height's going to be there, how can we make it something which is a, a positive uh, attribute? or actually don't have the height could be another answer. You know, we look at, um, you know, which city is everyone's favourite city? Like, most people would say that, you know, from an urban perspective, that it would be potentially a European city where there is, you know, just a mandatory height control. You know, there's sun penetration. It's optimistic and there's birds and, you know, it's just, an um, you know, an amazing experience. Um, and yet here we have these recessive you know, ridiculous one-to-one -one setback um, 
guidelines that make no sense in my mind. Um, exactly the question from the earlier panel, where would you, um, if you were going to live in Fisherman's Bend, in what apartment typology would it be in? Um, in you know, there should, I'm, maybe that's crazy radical, but I just feel as though there should just be one height limit um, and we can all make do. It certainly works beautifully for Barcelona. I mean, Barcelona is one of those cities that everyone loves walking around and it's got a six-storey sort of height limit on the city. It's, it's actually equivalent to about seven or eight storeys in sort of modern ceiling heights. And it's completely consistent and the street wall is a sheer street wall. Um, but the issue we have in Melbourne, and this is a real planning issue, is that there's lots of areas of incredibly low scale with an enormous amount of pressure from the residents there saying we don't want any change. So then the areas where change can happen, there's an enormous amount of pressure to actually put a lot of height there. So I think, in a way, the ideal scenario would be to put a sensible height limit across the whole of Melbourne. Um, but of course, that's then gonna come at a real detriment to those sort of low scale heritage areas. So, you know, I think, my concern is that height per se is not a problem. I think it's about actually how you interface with the street. You know, there's definitely plenty of examples around of taller buildings which work well. And I think there's cities with taller buildings. I mean, New York's a wonderful city and it's very, very tall. Um, it's about, you know, how the sort of buildings interface with the street, uh, I think. Yeah, I and completely agree. Um, there's some really great, I like it as well that we can't just say, oh, let's, I completely agree with you, actually. I'm a complete convert of the European courtyard block ever since living in Berlin. It was a really, this is a tangent, but um, I had a fourth floor apartment and it just blew my mind that I could have all the amenity of a suburban house on the fourth floor because I had the high ceilings, I had light coming in from both sides, every single room had a window, it was bliss. Um, but yeah, the European model is great, but also we do have a different planning context and there are examples from around the world where you manage to get both. Like you have the kind of lower height, um, six or so stories that really refer to the street and then you have, might have these really well composed towers that are actually good to look at that aren't completely dominating and do provide that extra density and intensity um, without completely dominating. I'm thinking of, um, for example, MVRDV have this project in China called Tedder Urban Fabric. And so there they were dealing with this idea that in China you need to build much more densely. But because they're a Dutch office, they wanted to have some nice three-storey townhouses. And so they just mashed it all together and it actually works quite well. So you can walk around this nice humane environment with these well-located towers that all, um, they're not super tight so you can actually, and they're quite slender towers, so everyone has lots of light coming in and they're well composed so that you don't have a problem with shadowing and things like that. Yeah, I always think about Rory Hyde's, um, you know, work that he did at Fisherman's Bend where he actually proved that, um, you know, you could do the whole of Fisherman's Bend, um, you know, this was years and years ago in six stories and, you know, have a bit of diversity but actually you got much more density than having these towers and, you know, I think that their students, his students put in, you know, a university and another stadium and all of these other things. So actually height and density aren't, that's not a thing. Do you, do you have a rebuttal? <laughs> oh, no, well, I have a bit of a rebuttal. I think that I absolutely agree with everyone here around how beautiful it is to live in European cities. I've lived in Lyon, I've lived in Berlin and both have really lovely apartments that feel a lot like houses and I, I definitely think we should aspire for that kind of design here. I just would caution against um, dreaming of a reality, dreaming of a future in Melbourne where we will somehow, you know, impose a six or eight storey height limit 
on the entirety of the city and think that that's actually feasible or desirable given the context that we have, which, you know, so Paris has a uniform street height, sure, but that's because Baron von Hausmann, I think it was called, you know, went through Paris with tanks and, you know, knocked down everybody's houses and then built huge boulevards so that they could, you know, have military parades down them. And that's just not going to happen here. I don't think we want it to happen here. Instead, what we have is a city that's been slowly constructed and has evolved over time, maybe more like London, and a really strong, vibrant democracy where people build and then retain an ownership of the place that they live and then try and defend it. And, you know, as planners and architects and, you know, contributors to the debate, we have to work with that. You have to go and talk to people and try and convince them that change is a, a potentially positive thing um, because otherwise you're not going to achieve it at all. Um, yeah, so I'll just caution against that kind of um, utopia whilst also trying to fight for in our new precincts like Fisherman's Bend to get really good urban outcomes where we are looking at, you know, completely reforming a suburb. So there has been the new framework that's just out and they're playing controls. And Leanne Holder worked really closely with um, the Fisherman's Bend task force on that set of controls to try and um, do a different kind of planning in Melbourne where you look at what kind of density you want and what heights are livable or achievable and um, try to combine them together so you get a really quite a different kind of urban form potentially down there. And I guess it's sort of interesting as well because whenever, um, you know, whenever you talk about apartment buildings, you know, we're always talking about planning. You know, we're always talking about these forms and height limits and regulations. And I guess it's sort of, you know, interesting for, for us um, coming from, from Wawawa um, who, you know, who uh, you know are very um, design-driven, narrative-driven. We engage in stories. For us, it's livability, um, you know, and lovability at the same time. Um, but it's it's sort of interesting because the conversation is always about these things, but it's never about the architecture. Like it's never about the 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 building and what it looks like, and that it should be this you know conceptual contributor to the city and. Um, it, they should have ideas uh, rather than just being made up of um, random bits of concrete and timber and, you know, being these sort of compositions, um, that the conversation isn't about them contributing to the legacy um, of ideas in this city. And I think, you know, maybe that is because, you know, it's hard to maintain a level of integrity, conceptual integrity, when you go through planning and things get sort of moved around a little bit. Um, but, you know, I think that it is... Um, it is interesting, you know, what makes a good apartment building, um, that conversation, you know, maybe it should be talking about uh, ideas, architectural ideas, not just planning. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. There's a lot of space to create more high quality apartments um, from a design perspective in Melbourne, but it's, it's about like to defend the architect. I think that there's not, we don't, we're not given the space to do that. I really love, there's a great article from about three or four years ago from Kirsten Thompson where she's talking about how in Melbourne as an architect you can either have the face or the body and what she was referring to was the um, barrack building, the portrait building by ARM, you know how it's got William Barrack's face on it and then at around that time there was a, I think it was an Ellen Bragg Fraser building that was Beyonce's body and so these are the two choices of an architect. Basically you've got this horrific, um, very dense tower of unlivable apartments and as an architect all you get to do is put the lipstick on the pig you get to kind of 
create the nice fancy facade and that's all we're given the opportunity to do. And so what I found interesting about what you were saying about Nightingale before is that through this slightly different development model, you're able to have that generosity, you're able to give back the pocket park, you're able to think about high quality design, high quality materials. And so that's why we need to talk about planning and that's why we need to talk about financial frameworks because it's changing those things allows architects to really embrace that design element. I'm really strongly of the view that the whole paradigm needs to shift from height to quality. I mean, I think the planning system has got it completely wrong where there's this obsession about form and height and all these sort of controls. But because in my view, a low, poor quality piece of crap building is way worse from the city than a taller, high quality building. Yeah, so you can have a three-story building, the ground floor is just you know, covered in graffiti and IGA with big stickers of fruit peeling off. Uh, you know, a really sort of crappy looking building that's just sort of decaying. Or you could have a six story or eight story or 12 story building which engages really positively with the street. It's really high quality, it actually gives something back. So I think we need to be talking much more about quality and not about height. I mean, for the record, personally, I think six stories is the absolute ideal for an apartment building because at six stories, you can still be on the top floor and actually engage with people on the street. You can kind of wave at them and make eye contact. So that's a lovely thing, but you know, unless we actually go out there and demolish you know, all the sort of inner suburbs and replace them with six-story buildings, we've got a different paradigm we've got to deal with. So I think we've got to radically focus on quality, quality, quality. So if, if I maybe play the devil's advocate a little bit and introduce the idea that maybe the Australian dream of owning your own house is starting to fade away and that you know, I think the whole panel can acknowledge that there's um, more of a need for apartment living to be uh, uh, accepted as, as a lifestyle and a culture and that it's really important that good design um, and quality planning outcomes is built into that and I think one if, if I dive into the interior of that theoretical apartment building one thing that's that's quite interesting is if we start thinking about the way people live their lives um, is quite different to um, the context which a typical apartment floor plan has developed from the past and I wonder what kind of adaptability and flexibility is being looked at in apartment design at the moment to um, uh, to allow people to you know with different uh, family units or living arrangements or to age in place and and to really allow for uh, something to be quite resilient as a building. I quite like the super lofts model um, by Mark Kohler Architects from the Netherlands. So they um, it, it's kind of a, another take on the Nightingale or a, another deliberative development option where the future residents are involved in the design of their own places. And Mark Kohler architects are really inspired by this incredible Dutch architect called John Harbrecken. And basically he was into the open building idea that buildings need to evolve over time. And so he really saw that, um, you know, the actual structure could be around for a hundred years, but then the spaces inside the buildings can turn over at a much higher rate, say every 30 years or so. And so inspired by this, Mark Kohler architects um, create this super lofts model where essentially they build, they call it a casco model, so it's kind of like a, a kind of shell apartment, that a simple kind of concrete structure and you're given this volume and you can do whatever you want with it and so some people actually choose to move in and just have the mere basic things there and start to build over time, especially if they're an architect and don't have so much money. Um, and it, but that also, that's kind of very, very simple structure gives you that ability to adapt and change over time. And so 
often quite interesting spaces, um, often kind of incredible double height spaces that maybe once you have a third child, you can build a mezzanine bedroom into that space, kind of gives that ability to adapt. And what we see with our apartments now is the exact opposite, especially if you think about those um, beautiful snorkel bed bedrooms, which I'm happy enough to <laughs> experience. That kind of um, precise, um, you know, squeezing everything in and they're kind of all overlapping and it's all strata titled and there's just absolutely no ability for that to adapt and change over time. So it's going to, we kind of almost have a ticking time bomb in our hands of these very low quality apartments that will just be very difficult to change in about 20 or 30 years time. Um, and Kino, I wonder if you can maybe uh, outline some features that could bring adaptability and, and resilience into an apartment. Yeah, so one of the things that we're, I suppose, struggling a little bit with fieldwork at the moment is the better apartment design standards, which, uh, you know, they've got a, little, a lot of wonderful things in them. One of the, my real bugbears is they are mandating minimum bedroom sizes, which is causing a little bit of frustration when we're designing these sort of quite small apartments that there's this sort of very mandated sort of minimum size. I actually recently took uh, the planning department of the city of Yarra and for a tour, through, a tour through our project and then took them up to our apartment. And I said, you know, they all looked through and they're like, oh, this is wonderful, this is so lovely, this is great. And I said, do you realize that none of the bedrooms in this apartment are actually beds compliant? They're like, oh my goodness, they're all under the minimum size of beds. Um, and so, you know, I think that what we need to be doing is actually rethinking the role of the bedroom, rethinking the role of the living room, rethinking the role of the dining room. You know, we're very much driven in the off-the-plan sort of design market by real estate agents and this expectation that you have to provide a plan even for quite a small apartment that's got a bedroom, you know, with its robe, a living area, a dining area, you know, a kitchen with an island bench, and all these kind of quite traditional notions about how space needs to be defined. And, you know, I suppose one of the challenges we do have when you're designing for off-the-plan is that you're trying to design for everybody and, you know, there's this classic sort of notion that if you try and design for everyone, you end up designing for no one. But I do think that we need to start rethinking a little bit about how these spaces are used. You know, I think in a one-bedroom apartment, who's realistically going to actually have a dining area and a living area separate? So one of my favorite little things I'm playing with at the moment is the idea of the kind of couch booth. So it combines the kind of uh, the relaxation of a living area with the functionality of a dining area. And who doesn't like sitting in a booth? You know, it's like the best place. Um, so I do think, you know, that's just a little minor one. But we're also looking at ways of sort of improving adaptability of internal spaces through, like, large sliding doors. So if you've got to have a bedroom, it's a certain size. If you've got these large sliding doors, it means you can actually, within the context of a one- or two-bedroom apartment, suddenly really open up your living space. And, you know, that's been a really sort of useful feature. But I suppose I want to sort of push it and make it even sort of more radical. So we're looking at, you know, implementing things like fold-down beds, which I think are, like, the best idea because otherwise you've got a room within the context of a one-bedroom apartment. If you've got a minimum bed-sized uh, bedroom, you're taking up quite a fair percentage of the living space or the potential space for a function that only really happens, you know, the sleeping function, um, you know, during the night. So a fold-down bed is actually a wonderful way of making that space really adaptable. The but what are we talking, though? You know, how, how much smaller are these amazing apartments, um, bedrooms that you were taking the tour through? Is it like 200, they're 200 smaller on each wall or yeah. 100 smaller or, you know, because I guess we're not talking about like that much space. No, it's not, look, they're not hugely smaller, but, uh, you know, we've got 2.8 by 2.9, 2.9 by 3.1, you know, they are not, 
a, a huge difference. Yeah. But the main bedroom being 3.4 by 3 mm -hmm. actually does make a quick, quite a big difference if you can make it smaller than that. So yeah. in my own apartment, I chose to make all the bedrooms really small, which made the living space a fair bit bigger. But maybe that's a thing that actually the living spaces should have been mandated as minimum sizes and then the bedrooms wouldn't look comparatively that much smaller. Because if you talk about those 30s apartments or 80s apartments, you know, they're actually just generous nice spaces where you can yeah. actually have a sideboard or something like whereas those tiny tiny bedrooms like we're just not talking that much smaller. No I and agree but I think in the context of affordability when you're talking about each square meter costing ten thousand dollars to buy. But if Baugroupen can wipe off instantly 60k off an yep. apartment that is more meaningful than taking out this much space into a bedroom. Yeah no look I, I, I agree I mean I think the Baugroupen model is a wonderful model but I guess I'm talking about the context that we're working within, obviously not within the assemble model, which is quite different, but in the context of designing uh, for, albeit they quite uh, forward-thinking developers, they're still going the off-the-plan sort of a market. So one thing that I think that I understand that BADS was trying to do is still allow for that to happen, if, but you have to make the argument. So it's not, it's not mandated, but you have to, which, which, I, which was one of the questions I actually had that to discuss today is how do you do that? How do you actually incentivize innovation and good quality design? Because as I understand it, what was happening with BADS trying to mandate minimum bedroom sizes was really not looking at the kind of amazing apartments that Assemble is designing or that Nightingale is des designing, um, which yeah, do have a lot of um, uh, individual involvement of the future purchaser in the design, which is an incredible thing. It's looking more at the majority, vast majority of apartments that are being built and also a sizable um, percentage of those that are sold off the plan and how do you protect the future inhabitant or purchaser of that apartment from buying an apartment that looks like it's a one or two bedroom apartment with a generous living and dining area whereas when you get into it you realise that if you had a double bed in that bedroom you can't open the door. Mm. So, it's, so is that a bedroom? I'm not sure if that's a bedroom. It's particularly not a bedroom if, well... It's particularly problematic when you when you look at the plan. It has a double bed drawn in there, but because you have an ability to do shrunken furniture under some regulation I don't even know about, so you can look at that and think, okay, all right, that's got two bedrooms. I can see that's a double bed or maybe even a queen. Hey, that's fine. And there's some cupboards in there, presumably that open. But when you walk into that apartment and you try and open the door, you can't. You can't. That's a, unless you take off the door or have a sliding door. And maybe that's yep. maybe that's a solution. You have a sliding door. But if you can't walk around the bed, so that's. I guess that's that tension. I think that is very real and needs to continue to be thought about as maybe Bads is refined. Is how do you um, stop that from happening, mm. um, but still allow your amazingly designed apartments to go ahead without being held up? Yeah, for me, it's not about sort of trying to you know game the system or anything like that. I think the objectives laid out in BADS are wonderful. I think the objectives are fantastic. But the issue that I'm coming up against a lot is that the guidelines are applied almost as law. So then, you know, they don't, the planning departments I'm dealing with are looking at BADS and saying, they're looking at it in a very inflexible way. Like when you read the objectives of BADS, they're wonderful. And it's, you know, if you can go and then try and prove innovation. But what I'm finding is that they're saying, well, that bedroom's 100 mil less than BADS says. And then you're sort of hitting your head against the wall with this thing. So I think it's actually the way the rules are being applied. Or they're being applied as rules, because they're not actually meant to be rules. They're meant to be objectives and guidelines. Yeah, and it's the same with, like, one-to-one -one setbacks and things like that. You know, who wrote these? They're based on Toronto. Like, no one goes, oh, Toronto is such an amazing city. <laughs> you know, no one ever says that, ever. <laughs>
crying Canadian in the room. <laughs> <laughs> um, They'd be too polite to disagree. With me. <laughs> um, yeah, I do like what you're hinting at, though, Kino, in terms of the different um, spatial innovations that we can have and how things can evolve and why do we always have to have the one-bedroom apartment because an investor's more interested in that, that than the studio apartment with the incredible fold-up bed. And I know which one that I would prefer to get that beautiful, huge space that you can use throughout the day. Um, I think another key one is about the size of living spaces. I think you were kind of touching on that. And a key kind of rule of thumb that actually comes from that Parker Morris report that Andy was mentioning earlier was that... This sounds really obvious, but it doesn't happen. Basically, a... Um, two bedroom, like you add up the size of the bedrooms to make your living space and so consequently a two bedroom apartment should have, sorry, a three bedroom apartment should have a bigger living space comparatively to a two bedroom apartment. And I think we really need to think about how many people are living this in an apartment and how will they actually use those spaces and maybe if it is a three bedroom apartment, do you need one bigger living space and then another smaller one or something like that? How can these places adapt and change? Um. <coughs> I think we've reached time for the panel, but uh, we've got a roaming mic <laughs> for any questions. Is that right? Yeah, we've got time for some questions. So does anyone have one? Start with. Hi, everyone. Um, first of all, just a side note, it's very frustrating these events that the people who usually speak in these events are the good guys and not necessarily the bad architects and developers. Um, my question was about, do you think that government regulation is the best and only, and maybe only way to promote good apartment design? Or are there other ways that need to be explored other than regulation? Thanks. Um, Mitra, maybe you can start that one. Um, look, I think there's lots of things you can do. I think something that um, I think came up in the process of BADS was how you can educate consumers, purchasers, about um, what is and isn't good off the plan. But it's, it's really tricky reading off the plan if you're not um, skilled in that. So I think that's where you get governments coming and regulating quite a lot just to try and get a minimum thing that protects people. Um, but yeah, I think... I think um, uh, people like the F Good Folk of Assemble as well as Nightingale and others around the city have done a huge amount to bring the conversation forward about what is what is a good designed apartment and trying to champion innovation and then the market can catch up to that. Sorry, I've got a bit of um, battery falling in my throat. Uh. <coughs> <coughs> um, and I guess just the um, maybe the power of language as well. Um, you know, maybe we, we stop saying house proud and we start saying, you know, home proud or something that, you know, actually it is about rethinking um, what is a home and what can be a home and, um, and, and you know, home as community as well. And I think that that's, you know, that's definitely going to be one of the, um, the most powerful things about the village because it is going to be this village um, and it will be about, the co you know, the community, um, you know, the, the bees that are on one rooftop and then the, you know, the... Um, older, you know, the older demographic who might start to take care of kids or, you know, that that was my master's thesis. I had this idea that, uh, yeah, you would have, like, the boomers as they retired, they would, we would use them as, like, uh, free childcare or something. <laughs> um, but that, 
you know, obviously is a whole different panel discussion. Um, but, you know, I think that, you know, through these, um, through exploring what, you know, community en masse um, can, can be, could help sort of start to shape um, what is provided. Because I think, you know, that'll have a huge impact on the city and, um, and, and what people want and people realising that they can affect change and that they do need to, um, to ask for what they want. Um, and and that will be a, a premium example. Hi there. Thanks for all the great information and, and uh, thoughts there today. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are, any of you, on the BiAssist scheme under the National Affordable Housing Consortium. Um, if you have any views on that model of uh, financially housing affordability, but also the design ethics of that, if you're aware of it. Did you want to take us through what that scheme's about? Uh, yeah, sure. So Buy Assist is a government scheme under the NAHC, uh, and it, it puts forward 25% of the cost of the build, the house, um, apartment in, in most cases. Um, some of them are houses out in Bendigo or further out. Um, and then you pay your mortgage on the remaining 75% uh, and you pay it out to the... Um, you own it, but at the end, when you sell it, you give that 25% of the sale price back to the NAHC. That's my understanding of it. Yeah. But they're more sort of construction company built design well, ethics yeah, at a different level. I have yeah. heard of a similar scheme that operated in Victoria about five years ago, but it was very much about the kind of um, outer suburban model. It was about having a court of about eight or so um, individual houses. And so in that particular one, the government would... It was a slightly different model. I'm, it's a bit of a tangent. But the government would essentially provide you... Um, with the skills of how to build your own house and um, the finance of, of getting you going. So essentially you needed zero deposit. And so each of the people in this neighbourhood would help each other build their own detached house. At the end of it, you would remortgage your home and you'd get that difference back as sweat equity, which was a really interesting model. But um, obviously doesn't apply in an apartment context. And so what you're saying does sound really interesting. I don't actually know about that one, but I've heard of similar themes. And I think, um, as discussed in the previous panel, we really need um, really clever ways that the government and other major uh, organisations can help with that financial element. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a lefty from way back, so I think anything the government can do to help uh, is uh, to help with housing affordability is a really good thing because clearly it isn't a real issue. I mean, the Assemble model uh, is a real direct response to trying to help people sort of get into the market to, I suppose, bridge the gap between sort of renting and buying. Uh, we're working with Melbourne City Council to put um, some discounted uh, rents for key workers because one of the things for me that's, that's really uh, problematic is the people who sort of help make the city run. So train drivers and tram drivers and nurses and some people even said baristas, which I actually agree with, um, can no longer afford to live within the city. And so I do think that some form of subsidy is important. Like we are in a situation where, you know, there is a form of tax subsidy for people to buy investment properties through negative gearing. I don't see any reason why we can't have further subsidies for people getting into their first home. So 
I think that's a really good scheme, and there should be more of them. Um, expert questions for me then, Andy. Um, so there was a question that we sort of touched on in the first panel and I didn't really get to ask that relates to this. So you have spoken a little bit about how the Baugruppen financial model sort of has an effect on design because it reduces the overall price. But um, does this collaborative community-based development uh, have an effect on the quality of the design beyond just the price, because um, ostensibly you're designing together with people who are going to live in the building. You can ask questions. You have a more kind of direct relationship to the purchasers. Can you talk a little bit, being representatives of two companies that um, build apartments very closely with um, future owners, can you talk a little bit about the process of design and um, what sort of benefits you can get just from that process? Um, it gives you the ability to be responsive, um, uh, I guess. Uh, I mean, we haven't really gone through the actual process yet. Um, we're, we're trying to move through planning, which is uh, being very difficult um, at the minute because of these guidelines that are implemented as rules. Um, and and the and some of these um, really generous um, uh, offerings. Um, again, we could spiral for a while. These really generous offerings um, that aren't being um, acknowledged properly. Um, but um, so hopefully, when we get <laughs> when we get further down the line, we'll have our group of of people and um, you know. But from the other. Nightingale um, projects, you can see the um, the impacts of that um, excitement um, and camaraderie um, with the WhatsApp groups and Facebook groups and things like that of people um, people contributing um, to their space and really making it their own, um, you know, and and kind of deciding collectively that they should um, they should in they should have. Uh, um, tenants like Home One who basically train um, homeless um, youth and train them to become baristas and um, that there is this kind of social element to all of the tenancies. Um, and so, you know, um, across the village there will be, uh, um, yeah, all of, the, all of the tenancies will be vegan. <laughs> um, and I don't know, like it's, it's these kind of things that you can kind of do when you're, um, yeah, no, I was just going to say, I haven't um, worked directly on these projects, but I did run a workshop um, this year for Melbourne Design Week, and it was really taking a imaginary group of future residents through this process, and we had little coloured blocks. Um, everyone could purchase the amount of blocks that they could afford and then assemble them into one apartment building. But a key part of that was the first step, where we asked everyone to kind of dream about what sort of shared facilities that they would have. And I think for me it was just fascinating to see that there were things that I hadn't even thought of that come out of that process and how people were able to negotiate and um, kind of work through to come up with what things they wanted to share and what things they could give up, such as having you know, their own individual laundry or that kind of thing. But I guess the, the key element to this is the particular um, model that allows that generosity 
because you have that engagement and you're allowing people to make trade-offs. Yeah, I mean, you even think about storage cages. Um, you know, most people's storage cages are filled to the bottom or they're filled about a metre high and then there's just got this volume at the top. Um, you know, it, it's sort of allowing us to rethink, well, maybe actually there's just shelves, um, you know, bunning style, style sort of shelves and you could lock up bits and pieces, but actually maybe not everyone would need a surfboard or, you know, I mean, golf clubs, apparently there's a thing about that. But, um, you know, <laughs> that you, you could have a spot where the prams, you know, collectively sit or... Yes you know, things like that and you can actually be much more efficient with the storage that you need um, and and things like that. So. so I guess from an assembly point of view, what we've been doing is, you know, to try and overcome that notion of like designing for everyone and not designing for anyone um, is we actually do an enormous amount of very detailed surveying of prospective uh, residents. So uh, for the first assembly project, we did a, a whole round rounds of de design presentations and really detailed surveys, which allowed us to adjust the design accordingly. And for this new assemble project, there's been two rounds already of surveys, which have really helped us sort of refine what things are like. Do you want a communal room? Yes, if you want a communal room, what functions would you like to see in there? Would you like a workshop? Uh, what functions would you like in the workshop? Would you like a laundry or not in your apartment? How many bedrooms do you need? How many bike parks? So all of those things have allowed us to really fine tune the designs to be much closer to what you know, the end uh, residents can actually need. Yeah, I just wanted to add a perhaps a slightly more serious note to the discussions of quality when we're talking about how to fix and tweak. Um, for those of you who have kind of across the IPCC report from last week, um, adding this thermal comfort, climate adaptation and having to address this quick smart is critical. It's no longer nice to have solar panels and things like that. Um, if we don't address our, our carbon emissions by 2030, it looks like we... Um, escalate well and truly beyond 1.5 degrees, which starts to have you know, the effects of releasing carbon in the polar caps, etc. And then we're looking at 3.4 degrees. So in the context of this and apartment quality, how can we deal with the safety of our occupants in the future with escalating temperatures? Yeah. I think... Oh, it's, it's such an important point. It was, I was talking to someone yesterday who comes from this company called Eco Advantage, who um, they, their sole thing that they do is replace lights and install solar panels and just adapt existing apartments to um, have a higher environmental impact. And it's mostly driven by cost, which is interesting, but we do have that in our favour. These things are getting much cheaper and becoming a cheaper option. The thing that he was, he was pulling his hair out about was that he's been contacted by these strata managers from big apartment buildings. And these apartment buildings were two years old, and yet he had to replace all of the lights and install the solar panels and things like that. So obviously there's a huge demand for these things, and they should be mandated and regulated so that... Um, the future residents are protected in that way, that they do have access to these things. And so I guess there's two ways to do it. You do kind of have a, these minimum standards about environmental comfort and sustainability, or you allow residents to be involved in the design of their own homes because they will choose these things. Yeah, I mean, Nightingale is fossil fuel free, basically. So that's, that's, that seems kind of crazy, but it should be just the norm. Um, and it's and it, it seems obscene for these buildings not to be fossil fuel free. Um, well, that's all we have time for for this panel. Thank you so much to everyone. I think.
Uh, it's been a pretty stimulating morning uh, of conversation. We're going to break now for lunch and we'll be back at 2pm with a panel discussion on what an open city looks like. Um, if you're looking to get food or some drink or something like that, um, we've got a poster up on the back which will direct you to um, a few food purveyors in the area. Um, and if you've got any questions, feel free to come up and ask one of us, um, any of the panel members, and, yeah, hopefully see you back here at two. You are listening to the second of four panels for Assemble Papers Living Closer Together Symposium. Stick around for part three. What would an open city look like?